Thank you, Nancy. Good afternoon. Now, as is the case in so many areas of life, when it comes to crime fiction, Oxford beats Cambridge hands down. <laughs> as a producer of crime writers and as the setting for murder, Oxford towers over the other place. And now we have dealt with the traditional rivalry, we can turn our attention to what is perhaps a more pressing question. What is it about Oxford that is so alluring to both writers and readers as a setting for murder? So I sound a bit like Taggart there, don't I? There's been a murder. <laughs> the reality is that Oxford has one of the lowest homicide rates in the country. But when it comes to fiction, it's got a body count that's up there alongside Bradfield, fictitious setting for the TV version of My Own Wire in the Blood, and the undoubted serial killer capital of the UK. Not to mention the fact that crime fiction now has enough fictional colleges to constitute a whole new university of its own. Among them, All Saints, Lonsdale, St Mary's, St Martha's, St Mark's, Shrewsbury, Simon Magus and Warlock. Maybe it's got something to do with the stark contrast between the setting and the acts that take place there. This is without doubt one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And murder is the ugliest act one human being can perpetrate against another. Perhaps that incongruity provides the stimulus we need for truly exciting and engaging stories. After all, fiction thrives on creative tension. But maybe it's also got something to do with the intellectual environment. Oxford symbolises the life of the mind, pure reason against the barbarians at the gate. But murder drags us all down into the dirt, makes us fully aware of how fragile, how corporeally human we are. Perhaps we like to see the inhabitants of the ivory towers brought low like the rest of us. And if we are living in those ivory towers, perhaps we like to be reminded of the earthiness below. But what it definitely has something to do with is the spirit of the place. The members of this university love their crime fiction, both as producers and consumers. According to crime writer Martin Edwards, himself a Balliol man, more than 30 alumni of that college have published work in the genre. And the publisher, Livia Galantz, whose company published those distinctive yellow-jacketed crime novels, said in 1983 that most of Galantz's hardback crime fiction sales, apart from those to public libraries and in London, were in Oxford or Cambridge. <laughs> now, part of it must be that, you know, we have that womb-like desire to return to Oxford again and again. And if we can't be here in the flesh as we are today, we'll settle for visiting it in fiction. Colin Dexter once wrote... Would Rotherham, for all I know, a splendid town, have made as suitable a stage for Morse and the murders he is sent to solve? I doubt it. So do I, Colin. So do I. For this is an easy place to be infatuated with. Listen to Dorothy L. Sayers waxing lyrical about the view Harriet Vane takes in from the roof of the Radcliffe camera. There, eastward, within a stone's throw, stood the twin towers of all souls. Fantastic. Unreal as a house of cards, clear-cut in the sunshine, the drenched oval in the quad beneath, brilliant as an emerald, sorry, in the quad beneath, brilliant as an emerald in the bezel of a ring. Beneath them, black and grey, new college, frowning like a fortress, with dark wings wheeling about her belfry louvers, and queens with her dome of green copper, and as the eye turned southward, maudlin, yellow and slender, the tall lily of towers, the schools and the battlemented front of university, 
Merton Square pinnacled, half hidden behind the shadowed north side and the mounting spire of St. Mary's. Westward again, Christchurch, vast between cathedral spire and Tom Tower. Brazenose close at hand, St. Aldate's and Carfax beyond, spire and tower and quadrangle. All Oxford springing underfoot in living leaf and enduring stone, ringed far off by her bulwark of blue hills. The kingdom of the mind, glittering from Merton to Bodley, from Carfax to Magdalen Tower. She makes it sound like a cross between the celestial city and an estate agent's particulars. <laughs> but the fascination with the city, I think, goes beyond the obvious explanation that many crime writers are alumni or have other professional connections with the city. One reason, I think, is that Oxford has many practical advantages as a setting. It's conveniently close to London, which offers the writer easy access to the world outside academe. And by its nature, it contains a vast range of nationalities and cultures, both among the university population and its visitors. It's a centre of power, and it attracts the wealthy who seek something beyond the material but aren't drawn to religion. And of course, it's full of very clever people. There's still a cachet about Oxford. There always will be. Academic excellence, architectural glory, and a sometimes volatile social mix. Let's face it, it has snob value. It's one of the institutions that defines us, the British, to ourselves and to others. And that's why the buses roll up day after day and disgorge their cargoes of eager visitors. What's intriguing is that these days, they're drawn as much by Morse as they are by the dreaming spires themselves. Because we also can't deny the fact that Oxford looks so good on television. Which for many a wistful writer is seen as the holy grail that will pitch them into superstardom. Yeah, right. Now, before I talk about Oxford's history of fictional murder and mayhem, I'd like to talk a little bit about my own route to this podium today. It never ceases to amaze me that I ended up here. I grew up in, in Scotland, very much a working class environment. My grandfathers were both miners. My father worked in the shipyard. And I grew up really with, with half of my world saying that people like you don't get to do things like this. And the other half of my world saying, call no man your master, you can go and do anything you want to do. I'm a writer, and I guess I became an Oxford graduate because, first and foremost, I am a reader. I acquired the habit of reading very early. My mum used to read to me when I was small. And when I was six years old, we moved house to live opposite the public library because back then, in the days before mass market paperbacks, books were a luxury we couldn't afford. The library was an absolute godsend and became my home from home. And librarians really were the unsung heroes of, of my youth. They were the people who encouraged me to, to explore the possibilities on the shelves. Um, I have to say, of course, that this was growing up in Presbyterian Scotland, where although you could take four books out at a time, two of them had to be non-fiction. <laughs> I mean, heaven forfend, you should have unmitigated pleasure. And this, this led me to, to, to explore all sorts of things, uh, history, and, and for some reason poetry and drama were classified as non-fiction, which doesn't say much for the imagination of the poets and the dramatists, does it? Um, but this, this was, I say, my home from home, and the librarians were always very kind, and they never laughed at me, you know, even when my, my reading age went far beyond my spoken vocabulary. Uh, and uh, I, I, would, I, I, still, I still am very grateful to the librarian who didn't laugh when I came in and said uh, I wanted uh, some more of those Norse leg ends. But I, I, <laughs> I did actually end up coming to Oxford because of library books. As I, I grew up in Fife, which 
is in some respects a very radical place. It's, 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 it's cut off geographically to the north by the Firth of Tay and to the south by the Firth of Forth. And until the 1960s when we got the road bridges, it was actually quite an effort to get in and out of Fife. So we tended not to bother. Um, and so it, 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 it was this mixture of, of parochialism and radicalism. And the, the very much what happened in Fife was, you, you know, you went off and got a university education if you were smart enough and you came back to Fife. Um, because why would you want to go anywhere else? Uh, there's a folk song very popular in, in the 1970s, which, which had the chorus of, Fife's got everything. Um, and the final line was, see the bonny pit bings in the setting sun. For those of you who don't know what a pit bing is, it's a slag heap. <laughs> but um, I, 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 I wanted to, by this stage, I wanted to, to be a writer, and, and I, learned how that, that I learned that writing was a job from the library. I used to read uh, a series of books called The Chalet School. Uh, see, I see there's some nods in the auditorium. Other lives than mine have been shaped by The Chalet School. <laughs> and uh, that was the first place where I realized that writing was a job. The Chalet School books are, are also in my introduction to series fiction. There's the, the books follow from term to term the adventures of, of the school and the pupils. So you see people starting in like year one and working their way up till they finally leave the school and often come back to teach there. But a bit like Fife, really. Um, but it, one of the characters, uh, Joey Bettany, starts off as Joe Bettany, becomes Joe Maynard, goes on to have 13 children. But in the interstices of having 13 children and teaching history at the school, um, she also writes girls' school stories. And it suddenly dawned on me, reading these books, that writing, being a writer, was a job. And I thought, this is what I want to do. This is what I've got to do. But as well as firing that ambition in me, it also... Um, it, it also opened up to me the possibility of coming to Oxford. Because um, I knew I wanted to adventure beyond the, the limitations of Fife, which meant going to either Edinburgh or St Andrews, or if you weren't quite so bright, Dundee or Stirling. I'm not saying anything against those universities, I'm just, that was the received wisdom of the time. Um, and uh, then you came back to Fife. But I didn't want to do that. And my reading of the Shalley School had led me to understand that there were three institutions of higher learning. There was the Sorbonne, there was Oxford, and there was the Kensington School of Needlework. <laughs> now, my French was not good enough for the Sorbonne. Anyone who knows you will tell you that the Kensington School of Needlework was never going to be my natural home. And so that left Oxford. Um, and so I ended up really coming to Oxford because, uh, because of the Shalley School, because of the libraries, and, and because of having to go to the library and read whatever was on the shelves. Also, at the same time as I was, was reading The Shalley School, I had discovered crime fiction. I used to spend a lot of time with my grandparents when I was a kid, um, and they lived in a little mining village that didn't have a library. Well, it didn't actually have a... Uh, it had a mobile library that used to come on Mondays. But because I didn't live in the village, because I was only visiting the village, I wasn't allowed to get on the library bus and get a book. So I was this poor child with her face pressed against the glass. You know, I can see the books, but I can't touch them. Um, and they, they were not readers. Um, it was a bit like Desert Island Disc. You know, there was two books. There was the Bible. And instead of a copy of Shakespeare, there was a copy of The Murder at the Vicarage, um, <laughs> which I've never adequately been able to explain why they should have possessed this particular book. But whenever I ran out of my own books to read, I would reread Agatha Christie. Um, linguistic scientists tell us that Christie's novels can be read by someone with a reading age of nine. And I was quite a precocious reader, so I think I probably started reading at about eight. 
And, and I loved this book. I loved the sense of mystery, the unraveling, the figuring out where it was going to end, how the subplots were going to work themselves out, and how the whole thing was going to come together. And I would reread The Murder at the Vicarage every time I ran out of things to read. And uh, indirectly, Agatha Christie then led me into a life of crime because uh, I couldn't get the Agatha Christie books out of the library because they were in the adult library. And I think if any of you who are not Scottish growing up in the 1960s will have no idea of the impossibility of a child getting into the adult library. <laughs> you, know, you would think it was going to be like infested with paedophiles the way they treated you, but what I did was uh, I stole my mother's library tickets and went to the library and said, my mum's not well, I have to get a book for her. And this allowed me to read my way through Agatha Christie, Niall Marsh, Dorothy Sayers, Marjorie Allingham, Conan Doyle, everything I could get my hands on, really. Uh, but, you know, one of the themes that runs through my standalone novels is, is the notion that your, your sins will find you out, that the past will catch up with you. And a few years ago, I, I did an event back at Kakadi Library. Uh, and my mother came with me, of course, because she still lives just across the road from the library. And to my surprise, one or two of the librarians are still there from when I was a kid. <laughs> You know, at the time, I thought they were ancient, but, you know, they must have been at least, what, 23? <laughs> and one of them looked at my mother with some astonishment and said, oh, I thought you were dead, Mrs. McDermott. <laughs> and my mother's like, well, why would you think I was dead? And the librarian said, well, with you having been a bedridden invalid all these years. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother's going, wait till I get you home. <laughs> some things never change, do they? So I, I, had, I had read my way through um, every bit of crime fiction the library had, and, and I'd been turned on to American crime fiction by my English teacher who had uh, given me a Raymond Chandler book when I was about 14 or 15. Now, when I came to Oxford, I thought, you know, I was going to have to put away childish things like the Shalley School and crime fiction. Um, but I, I think I was wrong on that score, really, um, because although we didn't study the crime novel, uh, in fact, when I was an undergraduate, uh, English literature stopped in 1945. Um, but we didn't study them, but every time you went into a tutorial, it didn't matter which tutor it was, whether it was St Hilda's or another college where I was sent out for tutorials on some things, always amongst the stacks of books teetering on tables and, and leaning on shelves, there would be those familiar green and white spines of the Penguin crime novels. So I did form the understanding that it was perfectly intellectually respectable to read these things, even if we weren't studying them. So this kind of gave me permission to carry on with my, my minor addiction to crime fiction. And what really um, fed the, 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 the habit, if you like, was uh, discovering Jeremy's 10p books, bookshop on the Cowley Road, which I'm sure many of you have over the years visited. And there was always a remarkable selection of crime fiction there, and there was where I discovered P.D. James and, and Ruth Rendell, and f more American writers like Ed McBain. And so as, as I was amassing my collection of English literature, I was also uh, extending my library of crime fiction. And so eventually, when, when I realized I was going to, to be a writer, I mean, uh, crime fiction was there definitely at the back of my head. Now, the first novel I ever wrote was set in Oxford. Luckily for my reputation, nobody has read it, <laughs> apart from the couple of dozen publishers who had the good sense to reject it back in 1977. Um, I got so many rejection slips with that book, I think by the end I was getting letters from people I hadn't even sent it to. <laughs> Please, we've heard about this book, don't send it. 
It was set in Oxford because I'd just completed my, my, my three years there at St. Hilda's. And this was my great Roman à clé, dealing with all the big subjects, you know, love, death, grief, revenge, bigotry, and punting. And with all the maturity that only a 21-year-old can bring to great literature. But by the time I realized that I was of criminal bent, uh, the Oxford years looked very different to me. And until I started next year's book, which I'm feeling my way gently into at the moment, I'd never set a crime novel in the shadow of the scheming spires. Now, it is particularly appropriate that I'm talking on this subject here today because I have finally applied my courage to the sticking place and embarked upon my Oxford novel. Well, it's kind of an Oxford novel, which was inspired by a bizarre encounter at one of the annual St. Hilda's Crime and Mystery Conferences, which, if you haven't ever been to, I strongly commend to you if you're a fan of crime fiction and you like to discuss the books that you read. Now, my first published novel was Report for Murder, and my character, Lindsay Gordon, was like me, Scottish, was like me, a journalist, was like me, a lesbian, um, and like me, had been to Oxford. Uh, and I created the fictitious St. Mary's College for her to be an, an alumna of. Um, and in Common Murder, she does actually briefly visit the city of Oxford. Um, I think that the, her, um, as she arrives, the sentence that she arrives with, as it were, will be something that you'll all recognize. Lindsay cursed the one-way system that had turned a city she knew like the back of her hand into a convoluted maze. <laughs> but I think what, uh, what I found at the beginning of my writing career was that writing about Oxford felt somehow too close to home. It felt as if I wasn't sufficiently sophisticated a writer to write about it without it being too uncomfortably close to my own life. And so I wanted, I wanted distance um, from, from my own experience before I could actually process that uh, into a novel. But I did make it the hometown of my Manchester-based private eye, Kate Brannigan, and her Oxford is very, very different from mine. She grew up in, in a blue-collar environment in East Oxford, where her father worked on the production line in the Rover car plant. I always had at the back of my mind to take Kate Brannigan back to Oxford, if only for a short story, but it never quite happened. Um, that's the way things go sometimes. The, the ideas are there, but you never quite get the time to develop all of them. So the book I'm working on now, The Cost of Everything, begins in Oxford. It begins in Oxford in the present day, and it, it goes back historically uh, 25, no, not quite 25 years, but a dozen or year, more years. And at least two of the bodies in the book in, are, are from Oxford. So. I'm finally sort of like biting down and going, you can do this, it's okay, you can do this. Nobody's gonna sue you. <laughs> Nobody's gonna recognize themselves. So that's sort of one half, if you like, of my personal crime fiction odyssey with Oxford, the, the writer half. But what about the other journey, the journey of a reader? What did that have to tell me about Oxford? And what myths did it create? What lies did it tell me? And what is it saying about this city and the university today? Traditionally, Oxford detective writing centered around the academic world. Plots were inspired by the peculiar structures of college life, both personally and architecturally. Though most colleges rather venerable than my own St. Hilda's, the detective novels Oxford was, was not a modern place. It was one of mellow medieval quadrangles, fine stonework and gargoyles on the spires, and ancient staircases with dubious plumbing interspersed with gardens and greenery that take the breath away. 
Oxford's landscape in these novels was a statement of the power and the privilege that lies within sight but beyond the reach of most of the citizens of Oxford, never mind anyone unfortunate enough to live elsewhere. This is the world that spawned what we might refer to as the first age of Oxford crime, the Donish detective. The first age of the Oxford detective novel was characterised by its cosy cleverness. At their best, those novels were witty and well-constructed, but at their worst, they were condescending, intellectually snobbish and too clever by half. Thankfully, the worst examples have disappeared without trace, of, only of interest to completist collectors. But the best of them are still worth reading today. I would recommend starting with J.C. Masterman's An Oxford Tragedy, which was published in 1933 and set in the fictional college of St. Thomas's. Masterman was a real-life spymaster, as well as an Oxford head of house, and he creates an authentic and, and plausible tale that goes beyond the crossword puzzle mystery it examines the effect of a traumatic shooting on the tranquil lives of the Dons. And it has that, that distinct flavour of authenticity that you get from somebody who really understands the world they're talking about, the milieu that they're writing about. To quote Michael Innes, which was the pseudonym of J.I.M. Stewart, a fellow of Christchurch and a professor of the university, Oxbridge, in general, is a habitat that offers the detective writer such a capital frame for the quiddities and wily beguilies of the craft. It's not what we'd actually call a soundbite today, but back when he was at the peak of his powers, it came off pretty close to a snappy one-liner. Innes was typical of most of the academics who took to murder. His academic publications may have concentrated on Joyce and Conrad and the modernists, but he clearly enjoyed his sidelines. He wrote about 40 mysteries, mostly featuring the charming, cultured and intelligent John Appleby, whom we follow from Scotland Yard into active retirement. The books are crammed with allusions to literature and art. Their prose alternates between ponderous and playful. They're entertainments, but they have outlasted the 20 or so literary novels Innes published under his own name. I suppose that demonstrates that the Dons writing Golden Age Oxbridge mysteries were more right than they knew in their assumption that detective fiction was a slight but not particularly shameful diversion. Interestingly, some concerns remain the same. Inspector Appleby first appears in the classic Death at the President's Lodging in 1936. Even back then, the traffic was a problem. Innes writes of how the city's grey and fretted stone, sweeping in its gentle curve from bridge to bridge, shudders and breathes as at the stroke of a great hammer upon the earth. Just like Maudlin Bridge, really. The Oxford detective story of this period that most people are familiar with is Dorothy L. Sayers' 1936 novel, Gaudy Night. Now, I am going to say something that many people in this room may regard as heresy. I am not a fan of Sayers. They'll be sharpening the knives back in Somerville even as I speak. But I find her writing overblown and I find Lord Peter Whimsey insufferable. <laughs> as we say in Scotland, there's a man whose face you'd never tire of slapping. I don't think I'm giving away a secret here when I say that, that Gaudy Night is a crime novel without a murder. For my money, it would be a better novel all round if Sayers had also been able to banish her beloved Lord Peter for the duration. If she'd allowed Harriet Vane to solo this one, she might have achieved her dream of writing a serious novel about important and, dare I say it, feminist issues. As my fellow writer Andrew Taylor has said, with Gaudy Night, Sayers is straying beyond the unadventurous confines of the Golden Age puzzle mystery. She tried to use a detective story both as a vehicle for serious themes, the value of scholarship and the price it exacts. 
and as a novel of character and manners with an attendant love story. It is the book that has given some of its readers their first glimpse of the intellectual excitement a university can offer. I can't really argue with that, though I could do without Sayers' snobbery and Lord Peter's condescension. It has, however, boosted the takings of the punt hire companies. Every year, Sayers' aficionados potter up and down the charwell, trying to spot the precise point on the river where Peter proposed to Harriet. While we might deprecate the reason for it, there's no doubt their attempts at punting adds to the gaiety of nations. And there is no doubt that Sayers' willingness to experiment with the possibilities of the genre opened the door to other writers to do the same. The Second World War marked a watershed in every area of British life. The old certainties that had been undermined by the First War were now well and truly shattered. It must have been a deeply unsettling period to live through, and it's not surprising that a lot of popular culture clung to a nostalgic expression of longing for what looked from a distance, like bastions of security and reliability. For a place like Oxford, accustomed to the long view of centuries of history, the past clung on more tenaciously and for longer than in many other environments. Between 1945 and 1960, educational reforms revolutionised the Oxford colleges. Grants for tuition and maintenance were made available, opening the university first to undergraduates and then to dons whose backgrounds were neither privileged nor wealthy. Their interests and ambitions were broadly similar to students at any other university, although their prospects were still undeniably better, as was the standard of the teaching. But as the undergraduate body began to change, so did the world of the crime novel. Those writers who wanted to write about the university and its denizens had a choice, modernise the conventions or satirise them by pushing them to the point of absurdity. So while writers like John Creasy writing as J.J. Marrick were trying to reflect the new Britain, Oxford crime moved into its second age, discovering a talent to amuse. For my money, the high priest of this period was Edmund Crispin. He brought a surreal streak of, of inspired lunacy to the solemn matter of murder and detection. It was a philosophy done at St Hilda's, Cathy Vaughan Wilkes, who recommended Crispin to me. And I can still recall the delight I felt the first time I read The Moving Toy Shop, published in 1946. The sheer brio of the writing, the daftness of the plot, and the ingenuity of the solution had me grinning from start to finish. In an unlocked toy shop on the outskirts of Oxford, a poet, Richard Cadogan, stumbles across a dead body and a hidden assailant. Upon regaining consciousness and escaping from a locked room, Cadogan goes to the police. The authorities are prepared to believe in him. But when they investigate, the toy shop is gone. There's an established grocery business occupying the address. Cadogan takes the problem to his friend, English Don Gervais Fenn, and the exuberant game is afoot. But as well as great storytelling, the moving toy shop is strong on atmosphere. Here's Cadogan arriving in the middle of the night. Through a rift in the trees, he caught his first real glimpse of Oxford. In that ineffectual moonlight, an underwater city, its towers and spires standing ghostly, like the memorials of lost Atlantis, fathoms deep. I love this book, can you tell? <laughs> Another of these farcical entertainments was Robert Robinson's Landscape with Dead Dons. Now, Robinson is an inveterate punner, and the novel is peppered with absurd names like the chaplain, the Reverend Beau Parley, who is proud of his fine speaking voice. It's a grim farce that fairly fizzes with bright intellectual energy, and it climaxes in a scene with more naked men than any other crime novel I've ever read. When I first encountered it, I remember being vastly entertained, but I tried to reread it a couple of years ago, and I have to, find, I have to confess that I, I did find it more irritating than, than pleasurable. As with a lot of satirical writing, with the passing of the object of the satire, so the bite goes out of it. 
a rare talent like Jonathan Swift can survive that. But still, it is a fascinating period piece, and it does take us through that transition period of the second um, period of Oxford crime writing. And the Oxford farce has retained its power of attraction over writers for a long time. One of the finest examples was published as late as 1994. I heartily commend to you Ruth Dudley Edwards' Matricide at St Martha's. Dudley Edwards specialises in savagely lampooning British institutions from the Church of England to the Foreign Office, and I think this is one of her best. She mercilessly takes the mickey out of everything from political correctness to SCR infighting, and she's entirely even-handed in her brickbats. I lost count of the number of times I laughed out loud at the antics of the extraordinary Baroness Jack Troutbeck and her hapless sidekick Robert Amos. This is a breath of fresh air through the sometimes stuffy stacks of the Ox Oxford farceurs. We all need to be reminded not to take ourselves too seriously. And matricide at St Martyrs is a valuable reminder, whether one has any connection to university life or not. And it does contain one of the most hilariously bizarre methods of murder I've ever read. Very, very scary for librarians. <laughs> As the changes in university life bedded down, crime writers began to emerge who wanted to reflect university life with a greater sense of authenticity. One of the bridge novels between the past and what I would call the third age of Oxford crime is Antonia Fraser's Oxford Blood. Her cast of characters include the traditional characters of the absent-minded professor and the spoiled aristocrat dining with his chums in the best of restaurants. Oh, there's a stereotype that's died out, hasn't it? But set against that is an unavoidable consciousness that there's another world here too, a world where people struggle to get by on their grants, where the dreams and ambitions are very different from those who have invested so heavily in the values of the past. And that is the hallmark of the third age of Oxford crime fiction, the past is acknowledged. There's a tip of the hat to wealth and privilege. And wealth and privilege still lay claim to much of the high ground here. But there's also a commitment to a more authentic picture of the world that the overwhelming majority of us inhabit. And so we move inexorably into the world of writers such as Margaret York, Colin Dexter, and Veronica Stallwood, all crime novelists whose books straddle the world of town and gown, placing the university firmly in its real setting the colleges are not mysterious islands floating in an enchanted lake. They're real places surrounded by a town that's more strongly intertwined than outsiders generally understand. College servants and staff have a life too. Dons have lives outside the college walls as well. Dorothy Sayers knew that, but it was something that had largely gone by the board for much of the intervening 70 or so years. It took Colin Dexter's first novel, Last Bus to Woodstock, in 1975 to take the lid off this new Oxford. Though before I get to Morse, I do want to take one step backwards to 1960 and Gwendolyn Butler's Death Lives Next Door. Butler is a quirky individualist whose work is nominally pre-procedural but always tempered with an acute eye for social observation, particularly for the off-kilter. And in this novel, she shifts her detective, John Coffin, from his usual beat in South London to the flats and rented rooms of Oxford's meaner streets where he explores what Butler calls a subworld of failures and hangers-on. These are the people who dreamed of academic success, of fellowships and lectureships, but didn't make the grade. People who snatch at the crumbs dropped by high table and who can't tear themselves away from Oxford. The stark contrast between this and the enviable world of genuine scholarship is well drawn, and the conclusions are by no means the obvious ones. With this glimpse into the way that worlds collide in a city as small as Oxford, 
we are drawn inevitably to Colin Dexter, a man who has become part of the fabric of the city he describes so well. You can find him in the pubs. You can find him walking the streets if you look hard enough. Colin Dexter understands the whole of Oxford, not just the cloistered world of the SCR, and he encompasses all of it in his work. But when he writes about the university, he's not concerned solely with the gilded youth and its transformation into the crusted vintage port of old age. Last bus to Woodstock centres around Bernard Crowther. The name alone is a marker that we're dealing with a different class of person from the Professor Falal of Robert Robinson. Crowther is a fellow of Lonsdale College, but he doesn't live in some wood-panelled fellows set in an ancient quadrangle. He lives in a modest house in an Oxford suburb. He spends his evenings and weekends not in high-flown debate at high table, but in reading, trimming hedge and lawn, and presiding over the steady decline and fall of his family life. The people who matter to him are not his colleagues at Lonsdale, but a local nurse who is his mistress, and the insurance office clerk who acts as their go-between. Unraveling these relationships would have baffled Sir John Appleby and frustrated Gervais Fenn. What Colin Dexter does in his 13 Morse novels is to link the different worlds of the city of Oxford in a labyrinth of lust and greed, deceit and ambition. The connections work. The interweaving makes sense because Oxford is a small enough city for these collisions between different classes and cultures to happen regularly. In London, it's easy to move exclusively in one world, only spending time with people with whom we share common ground, either literally or metaphorically. But in smaller provincial cities, you're always rubbing shoulders with people of different backgrounds, different jobs, different politics. So in the third age of Oxford crime fiction, the university ceases to be a hermetically sealed Olympus from which the gods occasionally descend to help out the mere mortals. Dexter is the one whose work we know best, of course, because of the international phenomenon that is the TV adaptation of Morse. But there are other writers who have staked out claims in this modern Oxford territory. I mentioned Margaret York and Veronica Stallwood earlier. York was for many years a librarian at St Hilda's, and she brought her inside knowledge to bear in a handful of novels featuring the Don Patrick Grant. They're psychologically acute and redolent with the whiff of authenticity. They're well worth seeking out, for the acuteness of observation and the acerbic eye York turns on her characters. Um, I think there's a real edge to those novels that, that belies the description of cosy. You could never call these cosy novels, although they tend to be sort of categorised in that way by booksellers and, and, and to some degree critics. Um, but I think Margaret York understands modern society very well and writes about it with, with a sort of forensic eye. Veronica Stallwood has opted for a character who is not part of the university, nor is she a graduate. She's a novelist turned amateur sleuth. And while the novels fall broadly within the Crosley tradition, they can also be very gritty in places, and her wit, again, has that edge of acid in it. She is an unsentimental writer, and her view of the university is not in the least sycophantic. Stallwood herself has said... Stately figures still dress up in colourful academic gowns and be tasseled headgear and drift across velvet lawns drinking champagne and eating strawberries, but I like to show my readers a glimpse of the mismatched socks and grubby trainers they're wearing underneath. There are 14 books in her series so far and Stallwood shows no signs of flagging. As we moved into the 21st century, so did the Oxford crime novel. It may be a little early to define a fourth age, but there are signs that something rather more noir is stirring in the undergrowth. Tony Strong's novel, The Poison Tree, 
is a dark serial killer novel that features psychological exploration, graphic sex, and an amateur sleuth who is a research fellow living outside college. It retains the Oxford obsession with cleverness, though. The clues can only be understood by a close study of poetry. And two of Joan Smith's postmodern feminist crime novels feature Oxford, though not with much love, it has to be said. Me, I always think postmodern is a euphemism for lacking a coherent plot. <laughs> something, something rather frowned upon by we purists of the genre. Another diversion from the past comes in the shape of Victoria Blake. She knows better than pretty much anyone about the real Oxford of, of the university life. She grew up in an Oxford college. Her father was the master of Queens, and she went on to take her undergraduate degree here. So she knows that whereof she speaks, and certainly her books, which feature private eye Sam Falconer, have that absolute sense of place that performs such sterling service in the crime novel. I haven't really mentioned that, have I? The importance of place in the crime novel. It's actually a trick that crime novelists play all the time, um, and I'm going to give away one of the tricks of the trade here. Um, the crime novel relies on the suspension of disbelief. We all know in our hearts that real crimes are not solved the way that people like me write about them. Um, it's not a maverick inspector like Morse and his sidekick Lewis supping pints in the trout that resolve murders that happen in the real world. So when you pick up a crime novel, you know you're going to have to suspend your disbelief and come along with, with us writers on this journey that we're taking you on. Now, obviously, we need to do everything in our power to make you feel that this book is authentic, that this book is, is real, that, that the story we're telling you is grounded in some sort of reality. And one of the ways we do this is with sense of place. I think myself that the crime novel is like a three-legged stool. It depends upon a strong plot, interesting characters, and a vivid sense of place. And if you set your novel in a real city that readers may have visited, or that readers understand from, from their, their experience of the world, then you've already got a head start on convincing people that you're telling them the truth. If I describe a place that you know, and I describe it in terms that you believe and understand and you know to be right, then you're much more inclined to say, I trust this writer, she's telling me the truth, I'll believe everything else she tells me, however ridiculous. Um, and I, I certainly, um, I think you know, we, we write about place in sort of three levels. There's, there's one where you do as it were, a straight description of a place that anyone who has been there would recognise and understand. You'd recognise the streets, the buildings, the bars, the restaurants, the places that people go. And then there's a sort of second level where you have to you, you describe it in such a way that someone who has never been to that city but who has lived in cities will understand. So you describe an area that perhaps is where, where the students live or, or the red light district that people will recognise, oh, that's like such and such a part of my city. And so then they'll, they'll come along with you for the ride. And then you have the times when you have to put a fictitious place in a real city, um, perhaps because you want to commit a crime there. You know, for example, if you're going to write about a nightclub where drug dealing takes place, you're not going to make many friends if you name a real nightclub. You're liable to have men with baseball bats knocking on your door on a Sunday morning. So what you have to know, you have to know the city well enough to put the fictitious nightclub in a place where it's conceivable that a nightclub could be. You wouldn't put a nightclub, fictitious nightclub, in the middle of a leafy suburb, because that's just not going to work. So you have all these different levels of which, which you understand the way that you write about a place. And, and, and I know that when, when people read a novel that's set in a real place, then, then they completely buy into what you're telling them. And oh boy, if you get any of the details wrong, God help you. 
Because, you know, you, you, your inbox will be full of people who say, you can't turn right on Oxford Road there. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's no use to email back saying, you could when I wrote the book. Um, and and, and it is the, it's, it's those small details of place that often, you know, create the greatest furore amongst, amongst readers when they think you've got it wrong. Um, and, and if you put stuff in that they don't believe is consistent, they let you know about that as well. So that is, that is really, you know, at the heart of, of one of the reasons I think why Oxford is so popular is because when you write about Oxford, immediately you're kind of plugging into a reference bank inside the heads of your readers and they go, yeah, oh yeah, we know where we are. Um, and unless we do something gratuitously awful with the geography um, and, 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 puts, and have, have people turning right where they can't turn right, um, then we can get away with that and, and, and bring you along for the journey much more readily than we would have if we'd set it somewhere uh, fictitious. Um, I've, I, I still regret really ha having, having the Tony Hill and Carol, no Carol Jordan novels mostly in the fictitious city of Bradfield. I did it in the first book because I thought the first book was going to be a standalone and I had good reasons for, for making it a fictitious city um, because it's quite critical of the police and I didn't really want Greater Manchester Police arresting me for speeding every time I drove the car out of the drive. So that I think, is, as I say, is, is another one of the reasons why Oxford works so well as, as, as a setting for crime novels because for us who have spent years here, we recognise the places and immediately we've kind of got this picture in our head. For people all over the world who've watched Morse on the telly, they've got a picture in their head. And for people who've never been to Oxford but, but have been to, to other great cities, there's a sense of, oh yeah, I understand the kind of thing that's going on here. So as you can see from this brief gallop through the high points of the last 80 years, there's no shortage of writers eager to have at Oxford with a bloody bodkin. There's even a novelist from Argentina, Guillermo Martinez, who's got in on the act with The Oxford Murders, a crime novel that centres around mathematical tricks and formulae, and has improbably been turned into an acclaimed film. Now, back at the start of this talk, I, I hinted at the culture shock of, of coming to Oxford, which was quite substantial for me. As, as I was saying earlier in college, the first thing I had to do was learn to speak English. Um, <laughs> And I survived th those, those first traumas, but I learned a lot about what it feels like to be deracinated and about the need to assimilate. And those are both invaluable lessons for a writer who wants to understand character and who needs to reproduce dialogue with a degree of verisimilitude. Once I had taught myself to speak English instead of Gidbraid Fife, I threw myself into Oxford life without reservation. I worked hard, though never quite hard enough to convince my tutors I was doing myself justice. I learned how to read, how to think for myself, and how to research with minimal effort. Also lessons that have stood me in good stead as a writer. I am a great believer in the fact that if you have three facts in your possession, you can talk for half an hour on any subject. <laughs> but other things also fed into the process of making me the writer that I am today. Um, I played hard as well as working hard. I became JCR president. I fought battles on issues as diverse as new washing machines and the necessity of extending women's opportunities within the university. I was instrumental in setting up a college newsletter, and I wrote poetry, which was published in various extremely small magazines. And I did party as if I was born to the breed. I made friends who are still close today. I helped produce the first real ale guide to Oxford, taking a vigorous part in the necessary research. <laughs> I discovered feminism, and along the way, I found the courage to come out. All of this in one of the most beautiful and dramatic cities in the world. 
that Oxford truly is a university that lives up to its mythologies. Like so many of you here today, I lay in punts on summer afternoons drinking champagne and eating strawberries. I got up at dawn on May morning to stand under Maudlin Tower and listen to the choristers greeting the summer. I toasted crumpets in front of gas fires. I ate formal dinners in several men's colleges. Actually, we, we had a grading system of men to go out with based on the quality of their co college cuisine. <laughs> it's true. Everybody wanted a St. John's man. No, and nobody with a taste bud would be seen dead with anyone from Keeble. <laughs> and St. Hilda's food, I have to tell you, back in those days was pretty grim. Breakfast was good and Sunday lunch was good, but apart from that, you always wanted some nice chap to take you to their college. But, you know, I watched open-air Shakespeare in college gardens. I danced at a May ball until breakfast. And I often sat up until the small hours, deep in passionate discussion about the philosophy of language or the morality of science. I remember the day Richard Nixon resigned. I'd spent the afternoon reading in a hammock in a garden in Parktown, the crescent immortalized in Colin Dexter's The Way Through the Woods, of course. I was lying there. I mean, this is, this is dreadful. It sounds like some awful parody of Bridehead's Revisit. I'm in a hammock in a garden in Parktown, eating figs and drinking Italian wine. And we went indoors as the sun went down to huddle around the TV set and watch history being made. As history is never far from the surface in Oxford. Partly it's the surroundings, but mostly it's because wherever history has been made, the chances are that there was an Oxford hand pulling the strings behind some arras or another. And not always in the obvious ways. One of my tutors was Anne Elliot, a woman of infinite grace, wisdom, and kindness. And she always appeared to be the archetype of a certain English sort of blue stocking, reserved, Church of England, conservative, incisive, and unsparing. I remember rushing into a tutorial with her the week after I'd read Kate Millett's Sexual Politics, a book which had changed the landscape of my mind. It was my first direct contact with feminism, and the fierce rigor of its approach had fired my enthusiasm. Here was someone propounding a revolutionary vision of the world, but one which was closely argued and which related directly to my own field of knowledge. And I was, I was absolutely bubbling over with the passions that the book and its ideas had inflamed. I threw myself on Anne Elliot's sofa and outpoured my reactions. She listened in calm silence until I ran out of steam. And then she smiled. Ah, yes, dear Kate, she said. <laughs> what? What was she on about? How could this conservative Oxford scholar have any connection to the radical genius who had just changed my life? I was her supervisor for the defil thesis that her book is based on. <laughs> she continued. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> now, can we turn our minds to Wordsworth? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's Oxford for you. It always gets there first. And thanks to the precedents of those great crime writers that came before me, and thanks to those piles of green and white penguins, it opened a door for me, as Oxford has opened so many doors for me, and I think probably for everyone in this room, Oxford has opened doors of one sort or another. But it opened a door for me on a world that's given me far more delight and more possibilities than I ever could have imagined before I set out on this journey. Crime fiction has been, for me, an exciting adventure. I was lucky enough to start writing in this genre at a time when it was in the process of entirely transforming itself. When I first started writing the crime novel, really all there was in the UK was the police procedural and the village mystery, and the Oxford mystery, of course. 
but I, I count that as a kind of village mystery because that Oxford was a kind of village. And I didn't know anything about the police and the way they worked, so I couldn't write a police procedural. I didn't realize at that point how much of it was just makey uppy. Um, and I certainly, um, you know, the police officers I had met as a baby journalist did not fill me with a burning desire to spend time with them and learn about what their job entailed. And I couldn't imagine writing a village mystery because the kind of village I had grown up knowing was very, very different from St. Mary Mead. You know, in Scottish mining villages, we did not have retired colonels of the Indian Army. <laughs> we did not have spinsters with herbaceous borders, you know. <laughs> We had wee women going down to the pub on a Friday night dragging their men out full of abuse before they drank all their wages away. We didn't even have vicars, you know, because we were Scottish Presbyterians. We had ministers. So there was absolutely, you know, no possibilities there, there for me. But in the years that I have been writing in, in the genre, it has expanded, I mean, incrementally. There is now, I think, nothing you can't write that doesn't fall within the possible ambit of a crime novel. You know, we have psychological suspense, we have novels narrated by the killers, we have novels narrated by dead victims, we have humour, we have, we have settings almost anywhere, we have darkest noir, we have books written about contemporary English village life that are, are a million light years away from the books of St Mary Mead. And for me, this has been, you know, just, just an absolute godsend. What it's meant for me is that I've always been able to write the books that I wanted to write. I've always been able to be fired by my excitement, my passion for, for telling the stories that, that, that come to me. And at the heart of all of that, really, has been my years of, of, of reading in the genre. And, you know, this is where it started. And uh, this is where it has taken me to this far. And... Uh, now I'm embarking upon, as I say, the adventure of my Oxford novel. Who the hell knows where it'll take me next? So, I'm just about done for now, but I'm going to go and sit down over there now, and this is the opportunity for you to ask any questions that you would like to put to me. Uh, there are a couple of roving mics, and it would be very helpful if you could, if you have a question, if you could wait till someone with the mic gets to you, because otherwise I will not be able to hear you. Thank you. Thank you.